What we are going through right now is a whole identity crisis as a nation. Who are we? And this is something that Fletcher gets into in this book, which is very true. Books help us to understand, answer those three big questions that every human since time immemorial have had to ask themselves. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? Welcome, Book Society Podcast. Here we are. My guest today is Judith Dupre. She is a writer, structural historian, and public speaker. She's a New York Times bestselling author and has been described as a scholar with a novelist's eye for detail and a journalist's easy style. Is that not the nicest thing you can say about a writer of narrative nonfiction? I think it is. I think it's a great thing, yes. So she is a total badass, a very smart lady. My mom, who is one of the smartest people that I know, has told me that Judith is one of the smartest people that she knows. So by the transitive property, we're all very excited to hear from you. And you picked an absolutely fantastic book. I should tell you, listeners, and you, Judith, because you don't know this little detail yet, but Judith had picked a different book about sand that I was really looking forward to reading. It was about sand and how sands and skyscrapers are important for building and we're running out of it. And it's a whole situation. And it's very squarely in her area of expertise. And about three weeks ago, she emailed me out of the blue and said, I'm sorry, I just finished this book, Wonderworks. Can we just do this book instead? Of course, I'm accommodating. And I said, of course. And the book is Wonderworks by Angus Fletcher, which is a collection of 25 of the most powerful inventions in the history of literature. I didn't know what to expect, but I found it to be amazing, insightful, really incredible. So incredible, in fact, that I wrote to Angus Fletcher and we are now buddies and he's going to do the podcast. Oh my goodness. So you know what? That's good for me because that means I can go a little further afield and tell you some of my own stories about how my writing experience and how this book has helped me understand my own process better. Yeah. Just to give the audience a little bit of background, Fletcher takes us through authors from Enhedwana, the first author to sign her name to something that she wrote all the way through Tina Fey and his analysis of 30 Rock. So literally spans 4,500 years of literature, which is quite a lot. And also in reading this book, my two sort of obsessions in life are music and I'm also really into ancient history and specifically Mesopotamian history. So I was pretty familiar with Enhedwana and I was also familiar with the end of the book he talks about Monteverdi. And I'm very familiar with that period as well for my own book. And so to use things that I'm expert in to assume that he's describing other things that I'm not expert in, well, he passes that test with an A+. He really knows that stuff. Yeah, super smart guy. And I love the fact he began as a neuroscientist and then he was a Shakespearean scholar and he puts the two together to provide a look at how literature can be combined with neuroscience and have all of these emotional and psychological benefits for the reader. And you asked me to talk about a book that I've always wanted to read. And this book is brand new, 2021. So I can't say that it's a book I've always wanted to read, but I am so glad that it's been written because it's a treasure trove. It's an important book. He claims that it's an ancient way of looking at literature, but it's certainly new to our society on this podcast, we don't shy away from spoilers, but there is really nothing I could say about this book that would make someone not enjoy reading it. But he sort of ends by describing 
his method as what the sophists who were sort of overtaken by the philosophers in ancient Greece used to use. One of the things I learned early on in life was that if you want to know what someone's talking about and you want to sort of understand someone, you can pay less attention to what they're saying and more attention to how they're saying it and their body language and what they're choosing to talk about. And that can really give you an idea of where someone's at. And that is, I think, how Angus Fletcher views literature. It's less about the specific words and more about the content and the way that it's presented. Yeah, and that's one of the great things about the book. He doesn't do a deep dive into exhaustive plot details. He picks out what the book's innovation has been, and then he goes back in time and says, so for instance, Jane Austen, one of my faves, Jane Austen learned from Henry Fielding and before that from Samuel Richardson. So here's her innovation. And this book is so rich with facts. But the way that it's set up, the way I read it is you can go into the table of contents and find your favorite writers. It's the Iliad all the way to Tina Fey with my Angelou and Shakespeare in there too. So you can find your favorite authors. And then he provides a blueprint for looking back and forward in this book's history of how it's changed us. It's just great. I wish I had thought of this idea. It's a great idea. He's extremely knowledgeable. The whole point that he is making is that books are therapeutic tools, that we can use books to make ourselves more loving, more compassionate, more empathetic, all that good stuff. And it makes me sad that writers aren't paid what therapists and psychiatrists are paid, because we are basically doing this kind of heavy lifting for our species. Yeah, that's a profound idea. Yeah, it's therapy for the entire species. Yeah, I just want to respond to something else that you said, which is that you wish you'd thought of this idea. And I had the same feeling, you're a professional scholar, and I'm an amateur scholar. And I had the same feeling listening to this as I have when I listen to a great contemporary piece of music where I listen to it. And I'm like, now that you've written this, it's very obvious that this should have been written. But I wish I'd thought of it, but I didn't. And I had the same feeling reading this book. There's something so bold and obvious about the great ideas. And it's profound, you know, because what it means is these great treasures are hidden in plain sight. And Fletcher makes the point really profoundly that books don't make demands on us. This is not a loud television set or something on YouTube that's like, look at me. A book which holds these incredible secrets of our species is quietly waiting on a shelf, waiting for us to discover it. So they allow discovery. They don't demand it. So that is moving. I had a lot of thoughts and a lot of memories come up with this book where I think that people continue to read. I know they do. Not as much as they once did because there are so many options that are available, but a story that's told in a book is quantifiably different than a movie or a TV show, video, whatever you're looking at, because a book is a solitary experience. And when you read and become immersed, I don't know if Fletcher gets into this, I don't think he does, but what happens is it's very much like communal singing, for instance. Your heartbeat slows down, you start breathing in a very rhythmic way, with the kind of breath that you'd associate with meditation, for instance, with controlled breathing. And that allows the heart to open up, your mind to open up to 
characters and plots and places that a book allows you to explore and allows you to explore really safely. You can read about horrendous things or faraway places from the comfort of your cozy little bed. Books are incredible. One regret in terms of people not reading as much is that a lot of these great books in literature were assigned to us when we were in school. And there was always a penalty attached, right? You have to read this big book by Friday when we're going to have a test and you better pass the test. So it was this assigned task. And I think that unfortunately creates resistance in adults that remember the olden days and books really change as you get older. It's like remembered trauma, I think, for some people with reading because the stakes when you're in high school of getting a bad grade while a few years later, they don't even matter. But in the moment, they feel very, very intense and very present. And part of the sad truth of what you're saying is that books are often impenetrable to people who are not ready to read them. So if you're not really prepared psychologically or emotionally to read Middlemarch, you might pick it up and it's going to seem completely useless to you. And whereas if you just picked it up on your own two years later, it will speak to you in a way that no other book will. Forcing people to read certain things at certain times in high school fosters that fear and makes certain classic authors seem intimidating or boring. And I had that experience when I was out of college. I just started reading again. And I remember reading Jane Austen and reading Tolstoy and thinking like, this stuff isn't hard. It's fascinating. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah. One of the great things I did during the pandemic during the year, I did a lot of writing, but I reread Anna Karenina by Tolstoy. I read it for the first time when I was 24. I was absolutely clueless. I was young, no life experience. And now it's like this extraordinary book that now I finally have the life experience and the happiness and the failures that make you understand this book in a way that a 24-year-old just can't. I don't care how smart or prescient they are. So movies have ratings. I think books should have life experience ratings. Do not read this book until you have X, Y, or Z. Then you'll be able to begin to understand this. Or read this book at 24, but also read it again at another time in your life. Tolstoy, and this relates to Fletcher's book, in terms of Books being inventions that help us understand, identify, and manage emotions, okay? What Tolstoy does that's so incredible is he creates twinned relationships throughout the book. What Tolstoy does in this way that's alchemical is he takes you through very slowly these relationships, and he starts building on them, and you, the reader, are developing the emotional chops to understand the story that he is telling you. But he's growing you as he's preparing to harvest you as a reader. It's so interesting. I'm in the process right now. This is another reason why Fletcher's book was interesting. I am switching genres. So I am known for my nonfiction books about architecture and structures in general, infrastructure engineering as well. And I'm switching, I am writing a psychological thriller that takes place in the 19th century. And it's an historical fiction. So there's P.T. Barnum and William James and Henry James and Mark Twain pops in, all real people, obviously. And they interact over a series of events that take place in the Barnum and Bailey Circus. 
that those are made up characters. And so I have been so immersed in nonfiction for the last 25 years that I am trying to teach myself how to write a novel by reading every single good book I can. So I'm just reading constantly, trying to learn from the masters. That certainly will help, and it definitely can't hurt, right? What's been a blast for me is doing a deep dive into 19th century history in New York City and in Boston. I mean, I love history. That's like mother's milk for me. I will always go there. So I have to kind of pull back and look more at the character's emotional triggers so that it's not just look at all these cool things that happened in the 19th century. And there were many cool things that happened. So let me ask you some specific questions because I do have some, but I just want to ask you if you have found yourself using any of the Angus Fletcher Wonderworks inventions in your own writing and if you use them consciously or did you read this book and realize that you use some of them and didn't even know that they were technology that you were availing yourself of? That's a great question. I mean, I think I was using them and Angus gave me some labels to put on them. In my book, The Heroine Dies, by the second page. She's deader than the door now. And then we go back in time. And she's a trapeze artist. I know I will never become a trapeze artist at my tender age, but to have these experiences and to live vicariously with the circus performers is developing empathy, does do those things that Fletcher says books can do. That's an important thing, especially nowadays when it's always me, 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 me. Everyone, the thought of actually doing something for the civic good, that seems to be a value that has become lost in this country, like really fast. Can you give me an example of when that was popular and how has that declined? Well, in the 19th century, where I'm basically living these days, there was the understanding that what was good for all people was good for all people. And this is where we see the great American institutions, art museums, libraries, the whole city beautiful movement is that cities can be places that uphold everyone. And everyone is not just the wealthy Protestants who are building these institutions, but the floods of immigrants that are coming in and want to better themselves. So a rising tide raises all boats. And it was great civic good that was a given in American society that we are losing. I mean, that would have been a tough pill to swallow for an Irishman living in five points at the time, even though New York City in 100 years is going to be fantastic. It sucks a lot for the people that were living there at the time. And another thing to point out is that for 60% of the 19th century, we were enslaving people. <laughs> One of the things I think about a lot in music, because every generation, probably from the dawn of time, but certainly in my lifetime, thinks that their generation's music was real music and it has just gone downhill from there. And part of the reason for that is that it's the same thing with literature. Like, we just don't get the crap 100 years later. The pulp novels that were published by The Pound in the 1850s just don't exist anymore. But Jane Austen still exists. And so when we look back on it and we study it, of course, it seems like wow, everybody was just Leo Tolstoy. But no, there were the same amount of Tolstoys. It's just that we still have them. And I wonder if the idea of civic good falls into the same category, that it's easy to look back and say like, well, people had this in mind because it has worked out for us. But I wonder if the same discussions and the same sort of selfishness weren't happening back then. Well, human nature being what it is, I'm sure it was happening. But 
there was actually a national push to build all of these things and to create these institutions that were free. On one hand, yes, people still as rotten and selfish as human beings can be, but we're also building libraries and public schools and social institutions that uphold women and children, which is something new. Also, what we are going through right now is a whole identity crisis as a nation. Who are we? And this is something that Fletcher gets into in this book, which is very true. Books help us to understand, answer those three big questions that every human since time immemorial have had to ask themselves. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? And those are the questions for all time, all religion, all books. Those are the questions that are asked. What happens after the Civil War in this country, we have 4 million freed slaves. We have hundreds of thousands of immigrants, the Irish, the German, finally the Italians show up and then others, coming into this country. We're moving from an agrarian rural society to an urban, industrialized, blue-collar, white-collar society. There is incredible tumult that's happening, and we are trying to make sense of who we are as a nation. So that's one of the impetuses for big changes in literature, Mark Twain, big changes in art, Augustus St. Gaudens, who carved the first image of Black men standing to meet their fate, as opposed to crouching or kneeling on the ground, which is why they had been. And I'm sure that there are similar innovations in music that reflect it, right? All this stuff is happening. And we can say, oh, it was terrible times, a terrible tumult. Oh, my God, religion and science are pulling apart. They're discovering radical science is coming to the fore now. So all these things are up for grabs. And we look back at this time and we think, wow, what an incredible time of new ideas, new inclusion, inventions, all kinds of newness that came from this tumult. And it's not to say that there weren't bad things happening. There are always bad things happening. That's life. Good things and bad things, very randomly, they happen. So I'm hoping that we can look back at this time and say, wow, okay, terrible times and look what's happened. You know, one of the favorite memes out of the pandemic is, you know, after the plague came the Renaissance. And I hope to God that happens for all of us. Yeah, I think there were some other factors with the plague. Property values went way down after the plague. They seem to be going way up after this particular plague. But I certainly hope that too. But I see us in a period of intense change and tumult and progress. And it's a little bit ridiculous that we're even having this conversation. We take for granted that I can just dial you up at your home in Westchester County and we can speak as if we're sitting across the table from each other like it's nothing and record it and then I can release it and someone in China can hear it later that day. That's something we take completely for granted. Yes, it really is. One of the great things for me is the opportunity to hear all kinds of wonderful Zoom lectures from literally around the world from people and panels of people that would never have been able to get together almost in real time to discuss various issues. So that's been extraordinary. Yeah. So was there a favorite one of Fletcher's inventions from this book, one that just jumped out at you? Well, one of the things I love are the titles. The invention of the second look, 
the invention of the double alien. Of course, George Eliot, invention of the gratitude multiplier, which is such an intriguing thing. Jane Austen, one of my favorites too, invention of the Valentine armor, which is so interesting. And William James, one of my dearest and closest friends now that I'm living in the 19th century, the invention of the riverbank of consciousness. And so Angus writes about William James in this book in a way that's so wonderful. So William James is the father of modern psychology. And what he discovers is something very important about how human beings think. Our train of thought is not like a literal railroad train where we have one car followed by another, by another, by another. It's much more fluid than that. So for instance, you're driving to the hardware store and you're thinking about your project and you know you need to get X, Y, and Z and you don't know, do you still have your trowel somewhere in the basement? Okay, and then you remember, oh, it's my wife's birthday, I have to get her a gift. Probably don't want to get it at the hardware store. That's good life advice. Maybe we'll just have a big barbecue and I want to invite Joe and Tom, but why haven't they gotten vaccinated yet? This fear is all due to Donald Trump. So that's how we think. And so what happens is, William James is developing his theories and he founds a psychology department at Harvard. And by the time he dies in 1910, he has developed these extraordinary theories that also include quite a bit of his experience with mysticism and clairvoyance. Boston at this time is ground zero for clairvoyance psychics of every stripe, which is another part of my book, or the second book, actually, in the series that I'm doing. So Bertrand Russell, a Brit, gets into talking about William James's stream of consciousness. But those ideas filter their way to Virginia Woolf, who writes stream of consciousness novels. And so it is this wonderful flow from the mind of William James, who has this enormous appetite for all aspects of human experience, and he begins to realize how we actually think. And this goes to the esteemed Mr. Russell and then to Virginia Woolf, who then innovates. And this is something that Fletcher gets into in the book. I love that, you know, as I said, it's not a deep dive. He gives you a blueprint. And I love that we have a map. So if you want to explore further, the book's going to give you that. So as a result of reading Wonderworks, I started reading Mrs. Dalloway. I had never read any Virginia Woolf, and it's just fantastic. And it's out there, but also it makes perfect sense. At the time, it was completely novel, and it's still a fresh way of telling a story. And you can't do this in any other medium, really, where it would make any sense. In a film, if you were at the point of view of one character, and then all of a sudden you're just in the point of view of another character, and then all of a sudden you're in the point of view of another character, and the way that she writes it, it makes perfect sense, and it's seamless. But you can't even really imagine it. I just feel all the things that are happening. Yeah, you feel all the feels. So that's the magic of writing. And again, the writer is inside of your head. And so that's where the heavy lifting happens. A movie, even music, is tied to a number of different moving parts that have to all come together. I'm consulting on a new symphony about the World Trade Center. I wrote the first history of the new World Trade Center. And then the brilliant young composer, Sebastian Winter, is writing a symphony. But because he was a babe in arms almost when 9-11 happened, it's going to be 20 years this fall, which is hard to believe. He asked me if I would listen to the music and guide him in terms of the narrative. 
And I explained to him, Sebastian, music is not my forte. And it's been a really interesting collaboration to think in another language, to think in the language of music, and then to use the tools of writing and emotion to help him understand this kind of long arc, 9-11 to the rebuilding, to the finished project and how it will live in memory. I was alive for the Challenger explosion, but I just remember it being kind of a situation, but I was very young. But this one, I was pretty cognizant of the world. I was 21 when it happened, I guess, approximately. And that was what struck me. And I think what was so scary about it was the complete lack of narrative. What everybody was doing on the news and in person was trying to fit this event in a context that made any sort of sense. And the reality was it was just a horrible thing that happened and we couldn't really explain it. And it took years to sort of put it into this context where now it's part of a narrative that's still unfolding, but has unfolded enough that we can understand it as a plot point and not just as a random event. That's part of the human tendency towards order, I think. Well, I'll tell you, one essay that had an absolute formative influence on me was written by the late great paleontologist and biologist Stephen Jay Gould. And the essay, which is well worth seeking out, is Jim Bowie's letter and Bill Buckner's legs. And the essay ties together the battle at the Alamo, the Boston Red Sox, the curse of the Bambino, and how the Red Sox lost the 1986 World Series to the New York Mets. Stephen Jay Gould weaves this giant epic story. But what he is trying to do with this essay is tell us how we tell stories. And so we think when we hear a story, oh, A happened, then B happened, then C happened. No, we cherry pick the facts. And that's how we create story. We create stories out of random events. And that gives us little human beings a sense of safety and security. Because in fact, the world is completely random. Good things and bad things, it's completely random. So think about this. You can think about your own experience. Something happens to you. You tell the story to a friend. You notice because you are an expert storyteller because you're a human being, and this is what we live on. You notice when your friend looks interested, when maybe he asks a question, what was that? Who was that person? And the story begins to morph. And by the time you're regaling a group of 10 people with this story, you know the timing, you know the characters to introduce, you know how to end it, you know the punchline, you know the whole thing. But while you are speaking the story, pieces of that story are falling by the wayside. It's not important that it was a blue Chevrolet. That's not really important. Now it's just a car. Other things are important. It's so interesting the way we create stories. And so what Gould's doing in this essay is showing us how we make sense of these widely disparate things like the Alamo and the Red Sox losing the series in 1986. That essay, you have to read it. I absolutely will. The best storytellers and the best performers and the best speakers are the ones who are doing material, but make it sound spontaneous. So I like to end all these podcasts by asking the guest to recommend one book by a living author and one book by a deceased author to our audience. Walt Whitman. Now, technically he's dead. However, for me, 
He's evergreen. He is a fountain. If you had not read Leaves of Grass, it is this most extraordinary gift to our species. It's this ecstatic inventory of people and places, emotions, the good, the bad, the ugly, and he presents it without judgment. Much like Tolstoy, by the way. Leaves of Grass is one of my touchstones. You know, authors, we always stick in little things that are just for us in our books. Walt Whitman actually appears in all of my many books about architecture. There's always a line or two from Whitman. And he's that versatile of a writer where you can put him in. And I swear to you, you can open up that book and you'll be laughing or you'll be weeping. It just is alive. Since I'm reading a book every other day here in my desperate attempts to teach myself how to write a novel, a book that moved me profoundly is Sally Mann's memoir about her life as a photographer and probably even more profoundly growing up in the farmlands of Virginia. And I have to say this book, it's beautifully designed as well. This book is the best piece of writing I have ever read by a visual artist. Her writing is incredible. And it's about love and many controversies. But she also talks about her photography, obviously, but she talks a lot about the process of creativity. It's called Hold Still. And I would highly recommend it to anyone who's a creative person, which includes all of us. Right. That's everyone who's listening to this podcast, probably. Everyone who's <laughs> listening. But she's actually very humble and she's had so much success. But she talks about the rarity of genius that the work is in the practice that every day you sit down and you do your thing. You either sit at your piano or your keyboard or you pick up your camera, but is in the dailiness of the practice that you become better at what you do and begin to suss out what you're trying to say with your work. And it's one of the reasons why after a dozen books on architecture, that are good books, I have to say, that I've worked very hard on, I had reached the limits of what I could say in nonfiction. And I had to go to fiction to talk about those deeper truths that I'm interested in. That's very exciting. We're definitely going to have to have you back, actually, whenever you want, but also when your book comes out, so we can make sure to tell everybody about it. And maybe someone else will pick it and we'll read it on the podcast and then you can listen to us talk about it, which I don't know what that experience is like, but we'll find out as we go. So thank you so much, Judith Dupre. For everyone listening, you can find her books literally everywhere, most notably the gift shop of the World Trade Center Museum. And now that you've been introduced to her name and her thoughts, you are going to start noticing that her books are kind of available everywhere. And then you should start purchasing them and then start reading them. And then when her novel comes out, you should buy all three parts of the trilogy and pre-order them and leave really nice reviews about them and clamor for the movies to be made. Judith, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your insight. This has been one of my favorite episodes ever, and I hope to have you back soon. Oh, my pleasure. I'm sorry. Did you just introduce and describe Bertrand Russell as a Brit? Bertrand Russell, the fabled mathematician and philosopher who is kind of the father of modern mathematical thought and a Brit. And a Brit. <laughs> yes. That's what I meant to say. Sorry. I have a pandemic yoga pant mind right now. Okay. Blame it on the pandemic. Mm -hmm.